Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are back with a brand new series and a celebration is in order because having run the figures, we are up to the 10th series. And we have now had over 15,000 downloads. So clearly there does seem to be a keen interest. And I'd like to thank you all for listening and getting us to this milestone. And you do seem to have a lot of fans out there. I don't think it's me. Or Hashem, what can I say? So this four-part series is about, as you mentioned last week, 16th century Poland, which we all know Poland is your speciality. Not that that diminishes all your other historical knowledge, but Poland is definitely what you are, shall we say, famous for. And we're going all the way back to the 16th century. Yep. So Poland is a country with hundreds of years of Jewish history, as we know. But in the 16th century, it was also the largest country in Europe through a marriage alliance with Lithuania. And it covered almost all of present-day Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, Latvia, Ukraine. And that does mean that some of the towns I may mention as being in Poland then are now elsewhere. So Rudin is in Belarus. Uh, Lvov, which was one of the largest Polish cities, is now in the Ukraine. And conversely, Posen, which was in Germany when Robokiva Eger was the Rov, is in Poland and called Poznan. So not only were Jews moving across Europe in the 1500s and 1600s, but borders were moving too. And by the end of the 17th century, Poland had the largest Jewish population in the world, In fact, until the Holocaust, the majority of Jews in the world could trace their ancestry to this region. And because it was so big, the East and West had different histories. They did have one central ruler, right? Unlike Germany or Italy that had a few. So, yes, internally they have a single king. When I mean East and West have different histories, uh, the attacks they faced, because they were so large were different. Uh, The Teutonic Knights, for instance, or Krakow. Krakow in the early 1600s was invaded by Sweden, even though it's in southern Poland. But it was untouched by the Khmelnytsky uprisings of 1648-49 Tachvatat. And what also makes Polish-Jewish history uh, both different and important is the autonomy they had, the self-governance, not just in any sort of single town, but across the entire country. It was a system more sophisticated than anything that exists today, with the exception of uh, the land of Israel itself. They were a class, a set of their own. So they're not part of the nobility, they're not part of the uh, peasants. And they create a mini government for themselves. They have elected officials, 
regulations, tax demands. We'll see that more during the rest of the series. They have rules for education, even for gambling. And obviously, this self-governance includes the types of institutions with which we are more familiar, like the yeshivas. And Poland will create a wealth of significant writings uh, which live on in our Jewish libraries to this very day. And it would be the location which, more than any other, preserved the minhogim and the laws of Ashkenaz. And once again, we'll look at that in more detail over the series. This period of Jewish growth really is 500 years long. It begins with the General Charter of Jewish Liberties, which was issued in Kalish in 1264, and it ends with the abolition of this autonomous Jewish parliament around 500 years later, and the ideal time was the 1500s, even though that was the century in which no Jews were allowed into Krakow itself, because whenever we talk about a good period, it's relative. And let's say in comparison to the Jews in Germany, the Jews of Poland had a period of calm during the 1500s. Now, Poland's good times, if you can put it that way, ended in the late 1700s. And from 1795 onwards, Poland simply didn't exist. It wasn't a country. It was swallowed up. The top three quarters was part of the Russian Tsarist Empire, where Jews had no rights, no freedom. And the bottom quarter of Poland was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Poland would only become independent again in 1918, after World War I. So after 1795, if you talk about Poland you don't mean a country. You mean a place on a map, but it's not a self-governing place. Therefore, we go back to these 500 years within which the golden age of Torah is 1550 to 1650. And history books would normally credit Krakow as the location of the first Polish yeshiva, which was established by Rav Yaakov Polak, in the late 15th century, although the truth is that really Lvov, Lemberg, in eastern Galicia, which is uh, southeastern Poland, because it had a very developed commercial route, it was the first to create a kehila and yeshiva. But simply the sheer numbers of Jews coming from Germany and Bohemia into western Galicia, so to the Krakow region, overtook everything else in the country. And so, as a result, Krakow and then Lublin become the main centers of Torah. And Rav Yaakov Polak is therefore seen as the first link in the chain of transmission of Torah, arguably in all of Eastern Europe. He is almost unknown, as is his primary student, Rav Shalom Shachna, and we will see the reasons for this next week. There is a 
tombstone in Poland on which it is written that it is the grave of a Talmudic scholar, Rav Yaakov Koppelman, who died in 1534, and this actually may very well be Rav Yaakov Pollock's Matseva. Whereabouts is that? In Lublin. It's literally as you come into the old cemetery in Lublin. It's the first grave that you come to. Now, Krakow goes on during this century to become famous for its renowned Rabonim, particularly in the field of Halacha, the Ramah, Moshe Isalis. Later, there is the Bach, Rabbi Al Syracus, the Tosfos Yontif, whose name was Rabbi Yontif Lipman Heller, and many more. And in Lublin, there is the Marshal, the Maram, and others. And there are perhaps four other noted cities of learning. There's Brisk. This, by the way, is three centuries before the dynasty of the famous Soloveitrix. There is Ostrog, where the Marsha and the Shlo were. There is Poznan Posen. Rabbi Yaffa was there, the Lavush. And there is Lvov, the Sma and the Taz, being the well-known rabbis from there. Once again, all of these are halachic rabbonim in the sense that they will create commentaries of halacha. And what was the relationship there like with the non-Jews at that time? Was there anti-Semitism? So, Poland's rulers allowed them to live their lives. I mean, it doesn't mean they, they were never the victims of anti-Semitism, but they were encouraged, you could almost say, to come to Poland because Poland was a country with vast farmlands, huge forests. Not much, in fact, has changed to this very day. And grain and minerals were the main commodities for export, but it was very underdeveloped. It was owned by those at the top of the pyramid of power, such as the nobility, who were perhaps 5% of the inhabitants. And most of the other 95% were the peasants, the workers, etc. So these 5% at the top, they needed a, a group, a class of people who would help run the commerce they would be the go-between, between the landowner and the peasants. They would be the ones collecting the rents. They would be the ones who would travel from one village to the next. And in fact, even the church, who also owned large parcels of land, but it was scattered over Poland, so they needed Jews in ways that the church didn't in other countries. So you're saying that the Jews in Poland had a very important role to play really in the country, much more so than in Western Europe. Yes. Through this century, it would change in the 1600s because of the shift of European trade from the, the Baltic to the Atlantic. Uh, but at that period of time, very much so. And in fact, there was a system called the Arenda, where the landowner of a region or a number of villagers transferred control to a contractor for a preset rent paid in advance and the new tenant so to speak had control over the income that this area produced uh, whether it was alcohol um, inns mills salt mines and these short-term leases basically allowed the landowners to do nothing with their lives nothing serious, and make money. 
and it allowed the Jews an economic role. So it would eventually, uh, because the Jews would be seen, would be visible as the face of money-making in Poland, it would create a problem during the Khmelnytsky Cossack uprisings because they would look to the Jew as the cause of it, even though really it was nobility who owned the land. And this arrender system became a very Jewish occupation. In fact, in the 17th and 18th century contracts, the word arrendator, in other words, the person who took over the lease, and the word Jew are used interchangeably. And it's estimated that 80% of rural Jewish heads of households were engaged in the arrender system in one function or another. So Jews came to explore the commercial possibilities in Poland, although there are other reasons why it was easier for them to settle there. Poland had a very diverse population. By 1635, 60% of Poland's population was not ethnically Polish. So the Jews could consider themselves one of the many different ethnic groups that were there. And, of course, there's the fact that Jews pay higher taxes than anybody else, so they're useful to the economy. But only the successful Jews. Yes, but having said that, many of the others came to Poland because they'd been thrown out of Western Europe. Uh, Being poor in Poland was better than being poor and persecuted somewhere else. Hmm. Perhaps to give you an idea of their lifestyle, so poor Jews would eat black bread, vegetables, uh, eggs, and perhaps a little meat and fish, whereas the wealthy ones would eat white bread, and there was a more than simply a difference in appearance between the two. Uh, We've come full circle. (laughs) Absolutely. And the wealthy would have uh, dairy foods and a considerable amount of uh, meat, fish. Herring was a big one around there. Now, the people in Poland drank mainly beer or mead, even the children. In fact, that is why, I remember Dan Berkowitz said to me, one of the reasons that Poland was quite lenient on the laws of Chodosh and Yoshon was because barley hops and the drinks that it made were a mainstay and they needed it, Uh, whereas the wealthy would occasionally drink wine. In fact, I have here an inventory to give you an idea of literally what it looked like in somebody's house almost. This is from the late... 1400s, a a Jewish house in Warsaw, and the list of what it contains is as follows. Six tin bowls, seven tin cups, two saucepans, three copper basins, a saw, a stove, a cupboard for bedding and clothing, seven pillows, six towels, two barrels of wine, two tin dice for gambling, one assumes, and Altogether, this was valued at 16 zloty, and then some silver goblets, you know, presuming cases, and some beds. Fascinating. That's what they had as their entire um, inventory. I like how the two barrels of wine are so featured so prominently in the inventory. 
Well, it could actually be something that they were trading in rather than something that they had for consumption. Right. Now, back then, women shared the burden of making a living in many cases. They were officially noted as co-owners of property when required. And, you know, if you contrast that with the fact that in the UK, a woman could not get a mortgage in her own name until 1971. So that's quite advanced. And you find a number of widows of wealthy Jews becoming heads of firms, I guess, having been active in the business prior to their husband's demise. The mother-in-law of Rav Yaakov Pollock, who we mentioned, uh, Rachel or Rashka, was not only active in her husband's business, but in community matters and in the king's court. And she was granted an honorary position. In fact, she was the only Jew who had the right to own a house in the heart of Krakow itself after the expulsion of the Jews in 1495. So, so Poland was more advanced in women's rights than the rest of the world. They were probably the first constitution in Europe was created in Poland. I mean, it was a little bit later than the period that we're talking, but nevertheless. And although Jews and non-Jews wore different clothing, the Jews were not made to wear the humiliating costumes that uh, were forced upon them in Italy or Bohemia. I mean, obviously, there was still church-based anti-Semitism, especially on a local basis and sometimes on a regional level, but it was muted for the 1500s, relatively speaking. I mean, we can't romanticize it but it does explain why Jews moved there and, as importantly, why even 400 years later, they saw their existence in Poland as more secure than other countries, which affected their decisions during the Holocaust, because you make decisions based on past experiences, and they had 400 years worth of that. Right. Well, you've explained the relationship with the nobility, the rulers. What was the relationship with the rest of the inhabitants, the regular folk? So, culturally, they have nothing to do with the non-Jews who were strongly influenced by a Catholic culture in terms of uh, art or literature. But everyday life, uh, the Jews were in contact with their neighbours especially because they were the Jews were so few in number. So, you know, if they need food or transport or many of the other requirements in, in life, they had to buy them from Christians. And the Jews sold to the Christians. He collected tolls and taxes from Christians. Uh, a Jew would travel with them on the roads, perhaps the only Jew in, in a, a group, in a party of travelers. And on occasion, you have got... Jews and non-Jews in partnerships. And uh, so that's on a sort of a personal level. And then the Jew has dealings with the Christian authorities, with the councils of the city, the state officials. What so, was the language spoken? Was it was it Polish, Yiddish? What did they, what did they speak amongst so themselves? The Jews amongst themselves only spoke Yiddish. Um, but doing business in the marketplace meant that the Jew had to speak some Polish. And in certain lines of commerce, their documents would have been in Latin. 
And in southern Poland, they often had to know a Ruthenian, a Ukrainian sort of. But we do have a number of preserved documents from history signed by Jews where there is an added Hebrew translation or a German transcript, but often in Hebrew letters. Um, and therefore, if need be, beyond Polish, they could probably survive without speaking any other language. Now, this Ashkenazi typical Jew who came from Germany or Bohemia or Austria may have had a Germanized first name as well as a Hebrew one, clearly had no surname, didn't exist at the time. And therefore, you know, when we talk about Rav Moshe Israelis, the Ramah, that's because his father's name was Yisrael or Israelis, even though nowadays Israelis is a surname of the descendants of that family. Uh, but back then, they didn't have any. So, you know, it was uh, Moshe de Trager or Sara de Hoecha. That was their name. I can see why things changed and surnames became... <laughs> right. Of, yeah. How many people actually moved from Western Europe? It happened in stages. By the end of the 1400s, the number of Jews in Poland was somewhere between 10,000 and 30,000. But by the mid-1500s, there are more than 150,000. And by the mid-1700s, there are three-quarters of a million. And by then, Polish Jews were half of all of the Jews on the planet. The, um, the, the dark irony of history that they all came there originally, as you said, for because it was the safest place. It was the easiest place to set down roots for Ashkenazim, yeah, yes. Now, the, the first influx of Jews from the West to Poland came as a result of the conditions in the West, uh, the Black Plague, especially in 1349, and uh, policies of persecution, the blood libels, so that Germany and Austria go into decline as centers of Jewish life, particularly Austria, and by 1570, most of the Jews were gone from Western Europe. And these new arrivals, I mean, they're mainly Ashkenazim, as we've said. There are very few Svardim that come to Poland after their expulsions in 1492. There are some. There is a Jewish physician from Spain called Izako, who was the court physician to um, three Polish kings during the 16th century, but by and large they are Ashkenazim, and they are spread out all over. So the number of Jews in a town could range from a few dozen families to literally just one or two. In uh, 1591, there were 44 homes in Zamosh in southeastern Poland. 19 of these 44 homes were inhabited by Armenians, 12 by Greek Orthodox non-Jews, 5 by Germans, 3 by Hungarians, 2 by Italians, 2 by Jews, and 1 by somebody from Scotland. A lovely salad. <laughs> there were up to 30,000 Scottish people in Poland at the time. Wow. 
So, you know, it was a real mixture. And in 1657, there are now 222 homes in Zamosh, so fivefold, 19 of which belong to Jews. And of course, you have Jews who are running an inn in the middle of nowhere, so clearly they're the only Jew potentially for miles. But even larger towns had small Jewish populations, Lublin. Uh, in 1570, there were about 1,000 Jews and there were about 5,000 Christians. Uh, Krakow, well, Kazimierz, they'd been kicked out of Krakow proper. They're on the outskirts in Kazimierz. There were about 2,000 Jews there in the 1500s, no more than 4,000 by 1650. And, I mean, generally, Europe's numbers shifted dramatically. In 1580, England and Russia both had a population of approximately four and a half million people in each. But 300 years later, by 1880, England had gone from four and a half million to 35 million, and Russia went from four and a half million to 85 million. Wow. And that, that was an explosion which was mirrored in the, in the Jewish world. In the 1500s, the larger cities were often off-limits to the Jews. Classically, Warsaw. It had the right, so to speak, of non-tolerandis Judeus, that they did not have to, quote-unquote, suffer any Jews. And this existed for more than 200 years. So when we talk about Jewish life in Warsaw, it's until 1500, and the numbers really only start in the 1700s when they're allowed back in. But having said that, they're banned from living in these bigger towns, but they were allowed into the towns to trade and participate in fairs. And within the cities, they're similar to the ones in Germany. You know, the marketplace and the important buildings like the town hall or often the church was in the center. And from there, narrow streets ran outwards towards the city walls and the gates even in larger cities. Buildings were set very close together. The streets were narrow, overcrowded, and of course, unpaved. Even in the big cities, you've got perhaps some wooden beams, but no real surfacing, which so means... What, what happened in the winter? Yeah, so in periods of heavy rain, or, or in fact in the spring, when the deep snow and ice melt, the roads turn to mud, and they're basically not really passable. And in addition to that, there's no sewage disposal. So rubbish and waste thrown out into the streets in front of people's houses, into the river, um, you know, sometimes there were open drains in the streets. It was not actually that pleasant to travel when we think about Jews trekking from town to town under these conditions and even through the towns. It was far from something which was a pleasant experience. And this is specifically Poland? The rest no. of the world was more... No, 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 no. All over. I mean, one of the reasons that in the 1300s that the Black Plague 
passed so fast around Europe was because people were literally throwing their rubbish out the window and it was festering there. And by rubbish, I don't just mean things that you no longer needed in the, in the house, but, you know, and the dead rats or whatever it was, they, they literally littered the streets. There's no, uh, you know, they don't come around on Wednesday mornings and then mm-hmm. open, you know, and clean your, your black bins. So it was... We get all left. upset when they're a few minutes late. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> now... Jews in Poland, similar to Germany, they generally live together around sort of a a courtyard or along an alleyway, not necessarily because they had to, but because of self-interest to the extent that they actually had mixed feelings whether to allow even a non-Jew to live on that street. Makes the Gemaras a lot more real with the Movoi and Shabbos. Yes, and the Erevin, etc. Yeah. In 1558, the community in Lubomol, which is about 25 miles east of Chelm. Chelm is a real city, by the way, it's a town on the Polish border. So this community believed that as long as they had at least one Christian living on their street, it would be a good idea because that way no non-Jew would set fire to the Jewish quarter because he may end up killing a Christian. But in the 17th century, the Jews in Sandomir didn't want a home that belonged to a Jew who became bankrupt, repossessed by a non-Jewish creditor because it was in the middle of their street and they didn't want a non-Jew there because he might bring in uh, priests or students, seminary, seminary students, and they were a major source of friction, um, especially at night. So there were different feelings whether you should ha- have your token non-Jew, you know, your Shabbos Goy uh, in the street or keep it completely free wow. just with Jews. You mentioned earlier self-governance. Can you speak more a bit about that? So we'll deal more with that over the next few weeks, especially the Vad Arbarotzes, the Council of Four Lands. But as a general overview, um, between 1518 and 1522, the king established five Jewish provinces. And in 1540, the last king of the Agalonian dynasty of the uh, Lithuanian and Polish uh, United Kingdom established a single structure for all Jewish authority to report to the king. And in fact, he had to approve the candidacy of any chief rabbi of Poland. And the outcome of centralizing authority through one single portal to the non-Jews now actually gave birth to a system of central authority within the Jewish community across the entire country for its own governance. Uh, You get the the small villages are now subordinate to the bigger towns uh, in terms of rabbinic authority, taxation, and there is a permanent arbitration tribunal in Lublin, a Bezdin, which functions as the court of appeal for any verdict of a local Bezdin or the non-Jewish courts. And in 1553, the king gave the right of enforcement of the verdict of this court in Lublin as law which would be upheld by non-Jews. 
he also, by the way, gave the Jews or the Bez, this Bezdin the right to execute non, hmm. uh, uh, Jewish uh, miscreants. Um, which I'm assuming which they never did. Not mentioned openly, but there are times where these things happened. And you find, I mean, this is a whole area in its own right, which by definition had to be kept under wraps, was what they did with informers who were endangering Jewish lives, right. which halacha grants the ability to uh, to away with these people. But clearly, this is not going to be mentioned openly, but you do have truvas that deal with it. Wow. Now, the influence of the king on Jewish affairs can be seen in, in various ways. One of them is a dispute between Rabonim in Poland. Rubyakov Polak, who we mentioned earlier as the first known Rosh Hashiva of Poland, was appointed by the king as the Hochmeister der Juden at the time. It was really a, for fiscal reasons. He wanted uh, a single channel to relate to the Jewish uh, community through. And Rubyakov Polak became involved in the problem or the issue of a divorce of his own sister-in-law because she'd been married off under the age of 12, which was not uncommon in those days. But the Gomorrah rules clearly that if a girl is married at that age, when she reaches 12, she can walk away from the relationship without requiring a get. It, the process is called miun, and Rabbi Pollock allowed this to happen. But the rabbis in Germany got involved and they protested because they said for the past century Ashkenazim hadn't allowed this to happen without a get. Even his own teacher uh, wrote against this decision, but he stuck to his guns. And interestingly, the Ramah would uphold this decision later on. In fact, on two occasions in his writings, he comes back to it, even whilst he acknowledged that most rabbis disagreed with Rabbi Yaakov Pollack. Now, this dispute exacerbated the tensions that existed in Krakow between the Polish and Czech Jews. And Rabbi Yaakov Pollack actually had to leave the country. And he came back to Poland a year later when he had safe conduct, conduct from the king. That's how involved the king was in Jewish affairs. And now the struggle between the Polish Jews and the Czech Jews for the rabbinate comes into the open. Rovyakov Pollock's mother-in-law, who had good connections with the court, as we mentioned, uh, pushes through the candidacy of another of her sons-in-law, <laughs> the uh, Kabbalist of Asher Lamel. So the Czech Jews elect a rabbi of their own, Rabbi Peretz, and they try and get him to become the Rav of the Kehillah. So the king tries to make a compromise between these two uh, groups of Jews. And he says each group should have its own rabbi, but they would share the shawl. And every member was free to join either group. And so he might have got involved, but clearly he doesn't understand Jewish politics. Uh, you know, this compromise didn't work. The, the Polish Jews complain that the Czech Jews tried to take the shawl from them, and the shawl is theirs. So in November 1519... The king acknowledges that the Polish Jews actually own the shawl. It's the shawl that's still there today in Krakow. I was trying to imagine the queen today getting involved in right. shawl politics. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Reading the uh, papers. <laughs> yeah. and, and this machlekas uh, plagues the Krakow community until the 1550s, even though by the 1530s, the uh, main Polish and Czech rabbis have passed on. 
and the rabbinate was actually united under Moshe Fischel, who was a nephew of Rabbi Yaakov Pollack. Um, nevertheless, it continued for another 20 years. So it was a, a real Jewish city. It had its own long-running Jewish dispute. <laughs> and then you have the next king, uh, Stephen Batory, who was the originally the Prince of Transylvania, who gets the Polish throne in 1573 with the help of a Jew, a guy called Solomon Ashkenazi, who by that moment in time had already moved to Constantinople as the court physician to the Sultan. He got around, but he was very well politically connected. And Batori protected the Jews of Lithuania against the accusation of the murder of Christian children. And he allows Jews to carry out all types of trade without restriction. And he makes the murder of a Jew the equivalent, the murder of a Christian, that it's uh, punishable by death. So these are quite far-ranging uh, acts of legislation in favor of sort of equality of the Jews. Once again, it doesn't mean there was no anti-Semitism, but it was less than in comparable countries. Although the problem is that sometimes the Jews felt too at home. In the early 1500s, there is a band of Jewish robbers in Western Poland, who working together with non-Jews would attack Jewish and non-Jewish merchants. But, you know, sometimes the same crime was seen in different ways. A rumor was spread about a particular witness that he was a known thief and therefore disqualified from giving testimony. And the Maram of Lublin asked people in his community what they knew about this man. And people said, yes, he's a thief, but he only stole from non-Jews, which was a common attitude of thieves at the time, that stealing from non-Jews was acceptable, or at least it was a lesser evil than stealing from Jews, irrespective of what Halacha says. And uh, perhaps to close, we find that even a thief who therefore was a sinner in one area of Jewish law could still have strong religious commitment in other areas of Jewish life. And you find a response written in Krakow, where a Jew who had stolen alongside two non-Jews was caught and imprisoned. This is in 1641, a little bit later. The day before his trial, he's jailed in a fortress. So he's planning his escape. And he writes to fellow Jews in his nearby town or the nearby town and asks that they prepare matzahs and tzitzis, because his were torn. And he writes that during his captivity, he had refused to eat the bread given to him. He ate only peas and beans cooked in water. And he had spent the entire period of his incarceration in fasting and prayer. Now, ultimately, his escape attempt failed, and his body is pulled out of the moat, and on him they find Tfilin and a small sid amongst his belongings. So people had their own sort of deals with God, as we do today. As we do today, yes. Well, perhaps he was doing tshuva. We will never know. Yes. Perhaps he changed his ways. Yep. Um, thank you very much for that, Rabbi Hirsch. As usual, any um, questions, feedback, comments can be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. As you can see from this week, Rabbi Hirsch has taken some feedback into account. We've had many requests to for Rabbi Hirsch to explain what Jewish life so that we get a picture of how Jews lived hundreds of years ago in Europe. 
and Robert Hirsch has done that down to the last piece of furniture <laughs> so thank you for that and we're looking forward for next week okay thank you